females. Welcome back to another episode of Journey of a Fearless Female, the podcast with your host, Paola Rosser. Today, my guest is Jenny Hubner. She is an aspiring author, artist, and humanitarian. She is passionate about helping others recover from addictions and discovering their true spiritual path. She's also a vegetarian and loves animals. Jenny is here to tell you about her spiritual journey from darkness to light. Welcome. Hi, so happy to be here. <laughs> She's an in-studio guest, so I love I love when people come in and actually like share their story. Jenny has actually been working with me for now almost about a year. Probably a year. Mm-hmm. And when I met Jenny, I mean, it was like a ray of light came into my office. She's got this just beautiful personality. She literally lights up the room wherever she goes. <laughs> Um, if I'm having a bad day and she comes to work for me, I'm like, she just like, it's just amazing. There was one time that I was having a really bad mm-hmm. week and I was like crying because it was just one of those weeks where you just feel like the whole world is collapsing. Yes. And, you know, Jenny's there to pick up some stuff and help me out. And she's like, can I just pray for you? <laughs> and I thought that was the sweetest thing. And I was like, yes, please. I need the Aww. prayer. And that was just amazing. And it really speaks of your character. Thank you. So tell us about how your story began. So I'm originally from Orange County, Costa Mesa, California. I guess what it was like and what it's like now is like I was raised in a super abusive alcoholic home, all forms of abuse, you know, physical, verbal, emotional and sexual. There was a ton of sexual abuse that really corrupted my mind and totally, you know, brought a lot of destruction to my path, you know, because when you're raised in a home like that, and that's all you know, like, how do you go out into the world and be like a normal, positive human being? Like, I didn't, I didn't know how to do that. And so I was raised in this home and I was raised by an alcoholic father, right? And I love him. I love him. He was not, he wasn't like a horrible guy. It wasn't like that. And there was abuse, but he was a super sweet man. He was just really lost. And my mother decided to go back to nursing school when she was, when I was like in the third grade. So I was like, what, nine years old. Mm-hmm. And so she would take classes at night because she would work during the day and go to night school. And so on those nights, like my dad would get extra, extra extra wasted because she wasn't there to tell him that he couldn't drink that much or he had to stop. Right. So he was like, "Woo, party's on. And, you know, I'm just like an eight, nine year old kid and I'm just like watching cartoons. And so what would happen is she would leave about like five or six o'clock and, you know, he'd throw the bottle back and get pretty drunk. And we usually get in a fight about dinner or, you know, because my mom would prepare these great meals and my dad knew how to make mac and cheese and PB&J and like, God bless him. You know what I mean? But like, <laughs> but I, you can't survive off of mac right, and cheese right. and peanut butter and he jelly sandwiches. Best, but I just, I remember, you know, one night it was, he was obliterated and I did not want a PB&J and he literally shattered the the cabinet, the our bread cabinet, he shattered it. And I just, at that moment, you know, as like a eight or nine year old, I had already adapted and learned like, okay, I'm not going to argue with this person. I'm just going to like, let them like throw their fit. And I remember just being quiet, being like, okay. And I'd go back into my room and I'd go in there and watch TV for like, I don't know, an hour, whatever it was. And I would come back out and I would stand at the end of the hall and I would see all the lights on. There were multiple TVs on, like in the garage, music on. There was always noise in my house. It was never quiet. And I would stand at the end of the hall and I would go, I called him Papa. And I would go, Papa, Papa. And I wouldn't hear anything. You know, I'd call my dog and he would come to me and I'd grab his collar. And, you know, I was just like a terrified little kid. And um, yeah. I would go out. And he was usually in the same spot, which was passed out on the couch. You know, all the doors are open. So I would 
go and lock all the doors. I would turn off all the TVs and I would say, Papa, it's time for bed. And that was totally normalized. You know what I mean? Like I didn't know that that was abnormal until I started going to friends' houses and they weren't putting their dads to bed. Yeah. It was almost like you were no longer the child. You were the parent. Yeah. Totally a parentified child. And, but I loved my dad with all my heart. You know, I, there was like a part of me, like an intuitive part of me that knew that he was like sick and knew that he was hurting. And that's probably where a huge part of like my desire to help people through their addictions come from is like just that desire as a child to like rescue my father, which we can't like rescue anybody, right? No, but we can't. can we can demonstrate in our lives that like, you know, I believe in a higher power, which I choose to call God and, and God has come in and totally rectified and changed my life. And I can show that to other people through like the way that I live. And so Hopefully one day my dad will be sober. That's like what I'm rooting for, you know? I mean, one of them, but yeah. So I would, you know, put him to bed and um, that was totally normal. And I, I, every time that I would approach him and he was, you know, obliterated or passed out, I, I had that fear like he died, that either like somebody's in my house, my dad left or he died. And as a child, like you don't, like if somebody's just passed out drunk and you're an adult, you're like, you know, oh, they're passed out and they're drunk. But when you're a kid, you don't understand. You think, are they dead? Yeah. And so he drink himself to death. Yeah, exactly. And I was just in a lot of fear. And so his alcoholism created like a lot of problems. And we we left my dad for a point and, and came back and you know, when I was in middle school, I just grew like very, very dark. I was a pretty happy child growing up. You know, a lot of the sexual abuse that I endured, like I never spoke about. In fact, I told myself that it wasn't real and that I made it up. And um, And it wasn't your father. No, no, no. It was, no, my dad was pretty amazing. I mean, he was verbally abusive, but he was, he was still like a loving dad, you know? Yeah. I know. My dad was an alcoholic and I hate saying that term because my dad- It's supercharged. Yeah. Because a lot of people picture an alcoholic as like crazy and abusive and like mean and angry. Yeah. Yeah, But my dad was happy. Yeah. He loved drinking. He just like, he just loved drinking too much. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My dad would definitely rage, but he was so, there was such a a gentleness about him that I just like, and I didn't really get that from my mom because my mom's over here trying to take care of me and take care of my dad. And, and she's such a caretaker. And so she, you know, came off as kind of cold and, and we had a very detached and Indifferent relationship. Yeah. But now it's so amazing since I've been sober almost six years, me and my mom have like a beautiful relationship and friendship now. And we talk on the phone all the time. And that's totally a gift of my sobriety. Like it just like brought us together. But when I was in middle school, you know, things got really dark for me. I wanted to blame my family for the way that I felt. And for sure they had a part, you know, and I was a lost kid, you know, and I didn't know who to talk to about what I was feeling or what I was going through. And so I went inward and I became extremely suicidal. I started self-harming at like 11 or 12. That was my first addiction, you know, and I, I have lots of addictions. There's drug and alcohol abuse, there's sex and love addiction. You know, I was self-harming. Yeah. Addicted to like suicidal ideation. You know, I was always thinking about like, how can I like get out of this world. I did not want to be here. So was this, this started after the sexual abuse? Yeah. Did you tell anyone about the sexual abuse or were you just trying to hold it all in? So I think that I had got into a place where I didn't believe that it happened. Like denial is so huge when it comes to people who have been abused. And I was just in total denial. I was in total denial that anything happened and I just kind of shut it out. And then when I was nine, there was another event where there was abuse, but it wasn't from the same person who mm-hmm. had been abusing me for like six, seven years, right? It was from a different man, a total stranger, and I just lost it, and I went home to my mom when the police were called. So I started to like 
Tell the truth. Yeah, speak out. I didn't talk about the first abuser, but I did share about that one. So there was something inside of me that was like, this is angry. Oh, yeah. (laughs) At like nine, I really, I really became like an angry kid. You know, after that abuse, I remember being it was like the third grade, I was sitting at the lunch table, I went and bought my lunch and I had my tray. And I remember I wasn't talking that day. And I wasn't eating and I had a a green Granny Smith apple. And Mm -hmm. I just was like stabbing it with the backside of my fork. And I remember hearing my friends say, like, what's wrong with Jenny today? You know, but I started to, like, I grew very angry and I internalized it. And when you're a kid and you're going through this stuff, like, we don't know how to communicate. You know what I mean? No, you don't. You don't. And a lot of the abuse, because it started so young for me, it was nonverbal and it was, I couldn't express it. So moving forward, you know, I became very, very depressed. I, there, I met, I linked up with other girls who were just as depressed as I was. And we had a notebook that would pass each other about the different ways that we wanted to kill ourselves. And I would, really? I would join these groups on like chat chats online yeah. about all these people who wanted to kill themselves. And we would just talk about like death. It's, not, it's super morbid. It is. It's, it was yeah. very but you grim. Were hurting. I was hurting and I was really looking for connection. Right. And so my family wasn't uh, very spiritual, but my grandmother was a huge light in my life and she was a safe place. And I would go to her house and I felt safe. And what I love about her is that her spirituality was attraction rather than promotion, right? She wasn't like, Jesus will save you. Go to church. Like there was none, there was none <laughs> yeah. of that. She would, I would be at her house. She was always gentle. She was always kind. There was never anger and there was never bad language. And it felt safe and there was no abuse. And I would go to her house and her Bible was always open. And sometimes I would ask questions and then she would answer them, but she was never pushy. And I I never tried to shove it down your mouth. (laughs) No way. No way. You know, and like, I'm not going to receive that anyways. If somebody tries to do that, most people, you know, you see these people in the street corners with their signs. It's like, you don't want to approach them um, because they're trying to shove their beliefs on you. So that's not, I don't believe that those people are always coming from a place of love. Rather than just showing like, you know, how to be a good Christian. Right. <laughs> Instead of shoving that message right. right down your throat, you know, so. And so that was more attractive for me. And I was definitely more receptive to that. And she was just a saving grace. You know, I, I shared with her that I was self-harming and she would just pray with me. And man, like she's a gift from God to me. Like she really, she's still alive, you know, but she's a little sick now. So mm-hmm. um, the relationship has changed a bit, but she was like an angel in my life. And so. I was very lucky to have a safe place because some people who come from alcoholic homes or they come from abuse or or whatever their situation is, there isn't always a safe person. A lot of times there isn't. And so I was very lucky that I had one and I love her with all my heart. And yeah, um, yeah so, you know, throughout high school, I, of course, found drugs and alcohol. And that was so perfect for me because I just wanted to shut off. And a big part of my story, too, is not just you know, the abuse and addictions, like a lot of it is supernatural too. And I opened a door when I was seven years old, I decided to play the Ouija board with some friends. It was a very dark experience. And I believe that that like cracked this door to the darkness open for me. For everybody, it's, it's different. And when I was young, I played the Ouija board. And (laughs) I got to tell you, I'm going to cut her story a little bit because I want to tell you my story about the Ouija board. I it's funny because some people are like, oh, it's just a game. No, it definitely it is really not. is like a little bit spiritual because my, my me yeah. and my sister played it when we were young. I think we were about 10 and 11. Yeah. And some kid. Well, they have who, them at like Toys R Us and Walmart. Yeah, and Walmart some kid and, brought it like, and I think they were about 12 or 13. We were at the park and it was about the sun was setting and scary. playing with it. Yeah, we were playing it with it under like in this bench 
table, you know, and it was right next to the bathroom and the bathroom had a light over it. And we asked if somebody was there that to flicker the light and the light popped. You would have thought that like it was a gunshot because all of us scattered so so fast and we ran away. We left the Ouija board there. We never went back. Like We never went back to that park. (laughs) Or hopefully didn't go back to a Ouija board. Right. I was like, we never went back. Even the kid that owned the Ouija board was like, I don't want it. (laughs) But I mean, it's a crazy experience experience. Did you have that sort of experience when you first played with the Ouija board? Yeah, we talked to three different, they were evil spirits and it was very, it was a very dark experience. And you were seven years old? I was seven. Wow. Yeah. And was so- Was there older kids in the group that- like, I think the girl, the girl whose board it was, was one year older. Wow. But they were, I think about them periodically, that family was, there was some heavy stuff in their house, like dark- I mean, if you're buying stuff like that and having your kids play it, like, obviously, there's some sort of dark force, you know, involved there. But I remember as a kid feeling that energy in the house, even prior to playing that game, like I could feel this like looming dark energy. And and so I definitely cracked the door at that age. And then I had a a huge fear of spending the night places, like growing up, like I would try and then they'd call my mom in the middle of the night because I would cry and I couldn't be there and my mom would have to pick me up at midnight. And it was just like, it was embarrassing. So when I got to middle school, I was like, I have to get over this fear, you know? Like, So there was an opportunity to go to this cabin that was like seven hours away. And I was like, oh, all my friends are going to go. Like, this will be the perfect opportunity for me to get over this fear. You know, I believe that lots of us, most of us are gifted like spiritually. And the Bible talks about that. And I'm sure other spiritual books talk about that, but they talk about the gift of prophecy and the gift of discerning spirits. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when I was, what I think I was 13, I had this experience and I, I'm on my way to this camping type retreat, whatever. And halfway there, I'm in the bus and I just felt this like impending doom basically that was like you should not have gone you should not have gone and I was like what the heck like I'm just being scared like whatever and I get there and I walk into we walk up these steps and walk into the front door and as soon as the door opened I heard this like voice in my head that was like get out yeah get out and I look around to see if anybody else is potentially experiencing this like <laughs> the fear. same voice. Yeah, right. And they were not. So I don't want to drag out the story, but long story short, I had a horrible, horrible experience, a paranormal experience. It was my first true paranormal experience, and I believe it to be demonic. And um, one of the other girls in my room, we had five girls to a room, and one of the other girls experienced it with me. Really? Yes. And it affected us differently. I was super traumatized by it. I was up the whole night. She was not. She only was up like here and there. There was a spirit on the bed and it was just evil, black, black eyes, dark eyes. And it was just, there was pounding going around all sides of the walls the whole night. Like it's something you see out of a horror movie, right? This was my first true experience with the paranormal. And so I learned, oh, you pray when you're scared. So I was praying the entire night, right? I had my, my teddy bear. And my blankie, which that blankie, that blue blankie I had was safety for me growing up, right? Because when I was getting sexually abused, I'd cover my face with it or I had mm. it and it was like a safety thing for me. Yeah. And so it, quote unquote, always worked. And so then I'm there and I have my blanket and my teddy bear and I had a cross necklace and I was praying the whole time and nothing happened. And so in my mind, God doesn't show up. God doesn't save you. God doesn't protect you. This teddy bear doesn't work. This blanket doesn't work. And this cross does not work. So after that, I lost faith. You know, I I took off my necklace and I said, like, you don't like you don't love me. 
you don't love me. You didn't care. I was so scared. And I, I come home from this trip and I remember I like wet the bed that night Yeah, and I was just, I was in so much fear and I felt like whatever that thing was, man, followed me home. And I, I lived in fear for 10 years after that. And I was haunted for 10 years after that, not by just this, but just a lot of other forces people that lived with me experienced the same thing. And it was, it was horrific, man. It was really, really terrible. Yeah. And, um, and for those 10 years, you started doing drugs and alcohol. Oh yeah. My life just, I went on a downward spiral and like nobody could save me, you know, and I wasn't willing to hear advice. I wasn't going to listen to direction. I definitely did not think that God wanted to help me or cared about me or, you know, and those are all lies, man. Like that's not true. Like the higher power, the creator of the universe loves us all, created us all. So like, those were lies, right? So when I came home from that trip, I tried to tell my parents and they were like, what? Like, you know, I, did, I didn't get support there. I tried to tell my friends and they're, they, I actually was bullied about that. And I was really? like a cool chick, like popular in school, cheerleader, ASB, whatever. Man, like I was bullied about that. And so it taught me, oh, you don't talk about that. Like you can't share that with people. They don't get it. Yeah. And um, I tried to go to the church and I did not, I was not getting what I needed. I, I, I really was looking for comfort, you yeah. know, and I and just, you just wanted to be heard. Yeah. I wanted to be heard and I wanted to be understood. That was it. Like, man, I lived like for so many years, just quote unquote, misunderstood, misunderstood. Nobody gets me. So I tried to pursue the church. Didn't really help at the time. I wasn't open. I wasn't receptive. And I wanted to do what I want to do. I wanted to drink and do drugs and sleep around, man. Like that's what I wanted to do. And it just infiltrated my life and uh, totally broke up my family, really destroyed like all my relationships truly. I lost a bunch of jobs. Um, you know, I graduated high school and I mostly just drank and did like smoked weed and did some other drugs. But yeah, after I graduated high school, I was 18 and I was I got my heart broken for the first time, like devastated. My, my mom had had an affair and then right after that, my, my boyfriend had, um, cheated on me. And so I was, it was like, it felt like a double betrayal. Yeah. And for me who wanted to rescue my dad. Right. So when I found out about the affair, I caught my mom in the affair. I told my dad and then it was such a mess, man. We went to therapy about it, which was weird because my grandma was a therapist because she, <laughs> my family, uh -huh. man, you don't, don't do that. Uh -huh. if, if one of your, your grandma was the therapist. Yes. She actually is a therapist, but it's like, you don't go to your family. It's a conflict of interest. Yes, absolutely. So for those of you listening, don't do that. Um, <laughs> so we go to quote therapy, right? And um, my mom is just crying and she's like, Jenny's lying. She's lying. And about her affair. affair. And so then that just Triggered solidified you. the voice that said, like, you're not loved, you're not heard, you're misunderstood, you're not worth it, right? Yeah. So, so everything that's happened to you up to your life at this point, like you getting abused and you telling them and them not believing you. And then all the hauntings. And then the hauntings and then you telling them and them not believing you and now seeing your mom have an affair and you telling them and then not believing you. Right. It's just, you know, you're just getting more and more, like you said, validation that you're unheard. Right. Yeah, exactly. And not significant. That's like was a huge thing for me is like feeling insignificant. And like me and my mom have talked about it since, you know, and there's peace there. And like, I understand. Yeah, forgiveness like, now, but yeah. at the time. And you're, chi you're still a child. Right. Still trying to figure life out. Right. I mean, you're not exactly like a 30 year old. You're 18. You're still trying to figure right. life out. You know, she left for a while I, to Palm Springs to be with, you know, our other family after that for a short time. And to me, that was just abandonment, right? I was, and then I just became unruly, man. Like I just, at that point, I just stopped caring. I was like, you know what? I don't give 
I don't know. Are we allowed to curse on here? <laughs> I, I don't give two hex. Okay. I don't give two hex. Um, what my parents think I'm going to get drunk all the time. I'm going to do drugs all the time. I hate you guys. Like, man, I was just, so, I was a mean, I was angry. I was really, yeah. really mean. I, I didn't care who was around. My mom's friends were around. I would tell her what I thought about her and I would try to humiliate her, you know, cause I felt humiliated in a lot of ways and whatever, justified, justified, justified. And so then I'm 18 and, and they find, I tried to, <laughs> I tried to be like a drug dealer. Not good at it. Uh-huh. Not good at it. You know, I had little baggies. I was dealing like Adderall and ecstasy, whatever. Uh-huh. And then my parents found it. And, and I came home one day and it was so funny because this was like right when I started getting my foot in the door to like witchcraft, right? It started with seeing psychics for me. And so, and like tarot cards, whatever. And so I went to my first psychic and I went with my best friend and it was like $5 palm reading. And, <laughs> and I was like, I'm not going to do it. And then they're like, it's just $5. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. Uh-huh. And they said all this stuff, you know, and then they said, um, they said, a lot of stress is coming in your very near future. And I was like, oh, please. Like that is a generalization. You could say that to anybody. You yeah. Know? I get home that afternoon. My parents have all my drugs on the table. They have my journal. My mom went through my journal and they were like, either you go to rehab or you get the hell out of our house. And I was like, you go to rehab. I'm going to get the hell out. And so I packed up all my art supplies and all my midriff tops. And I became a traveling gypsy that never left Costa Mesa. Like, really? I just, that never left Costa Mesa? No. You're the traveling Costa Mesa gypsy. gypsy. Yeah. So I don't say that I was homeless because I always did have a roof over my head. But I lived in so many different houses, man. Like Because I wanted to support my habit. And my habit was like, I wanted to party and do drugs all the time. And I didn't want to listen to what anybody had to tell me. Like I'm yeah. just trying to have fun, quote. But really, it was just, I'm just trying to numb out. You're having your own Woodstock, yeah, but it was in Costa Mesa. <laughs> yeah, and nobody else was really invited. <laughs> it was just yeah. horrible. It, it became very miserable, you know. And I mean, we're laughing, but it, it's still like, it's, you know, it's funny now, right. but looking back, you were probably in a really miserable place. Oh, yeah. I hated myself. And the self-harm continued and worsened. And yeah. And doing drugs just sedates what you're really just covering up. Right. You're covering up all... All the stuff. All the pain, all the hurt, all the misunderstandings, everything. Yeah. And instead of like going to therapy and talking it out or, you know, finding someone that's going to help you, you went the other way. Yeah. I just... And I did try therapy and... um but I mean, therapy only goes so far for an alcoholic. If you're an al- a true alcoholic, therapy is not going to solve your alcoholic problem. You probably need treatment or a 12-step program or, or whatever, you know, like, so I tried to treat my alcoholism with therapy for a time and it didn't work. And so I, I left my parents' house. I'm living with a bunch of different people. I'm getting kicked out of every place that I live in. Are you also doing witchcraft at this time or? So I, I was, I started, like I said, I started seeing psychics. I started seeing psychics all the time. And then I would go and they, the first thing that they would always say to me is, Hey, you're a psychic too. And I was like, Oh, cool. And like, I, you're all then give me $5. (laughs) You pay me lady. (laughs) What the heck? And, uh, they would tell me that. And they were like, you should really pursue this. You should pursue this. The fact that you've been seeing spirits since you were 13 means that you're psychic and you should pursue this. And I was like, Oh, Okay. So I start doing different forms of divination. I start really necromancing, which is connecting with the dead. I would sit and do meditations where I would empty myself out and ask spirits to speak to me. And so I would talk to the dead. I would have people come to me. People knew that I was involved in this, like all my friends. I would talk about it all the time. And and they would come to me. They'd have me do readings for them. Or they'd say, hey, my fiance died. Can you tell me? Right. And I would do that. 
And that was fine for a while, right? But it 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 was like tiny stepping stones into the darkness for me. And I found this temple when I don't know if I had gotten sober yet, but I found this temple. It was a it's called a goddess temple essentially, but it is full-blown witchcraft. And um what I liked about it is that I was so so broken and like beat down by men specifically, and so I went to this place that was women only, right? And yeah. and you go in and and the first thing they say to you is you're beautiful. So I liked that and they would they'd put like a little jewel on your forehead and say you're beautiful and it felt it was warm for me at first. And I get in there and essentially what you do is you do magic circles around pentagrams. You, what? But how did you find this? Like to me it's like what where did you go from like okay I'm going to see a psychic to now I'm like devoiding my body to try to contact spirits like did they teach you that? Did the psychic lady teach you that? And did they tell you this is the goddess temple? Go here. Like, no, I think I actually heard about it from a friend who knew somebody who went to this thing and they thought that I would like it. Oh, okay. so so you're around this pentagram and they're doing this thing. Were the, you thinking at all like, what am I doing here? Or were you like, I finally found the place I belong? I think I finally felt like heard and that people were experiencing the supernatural stuff that I'd experienced for you know a decade that was tormenting. Nobody believed you. They did because people who lived with me would experience it too, but nobody understood and nobody knew how tormented I was. It was like every day, Paola, mm-hmm. like every day seeing spirits. And it was just like I, a switch that I could not turn off. And like, that's a huge reason why I drank and used the way I did is because I was like, dude, this is too much. This is too much for me. Like, yeah. I cannot handle this. So then the psychics told me like, oh, you should, there's a psychic school that I went to where you like channel spirits and people like channeling where they let spirits speak through their mouths and it's totally it was totally demonic and yeah. it was it was like the movie ghost <laughs> i actually haven't seen that but i know what movie you're talking yeah, about with patrick Swayze. is that what they do <laughs> yeah it's a love it's a love story oh, of though course. it's completely different oh god <laughs> i'm gonna have to I'm see visu- this that's what i'm visualizing right now when you're saying that <laughs> yeah and you know i just got really wrapped up into that and people were telling me like this is your gifting this is how you pursue it and i was just so deceived and i was so lost that when somebody finally heard me, I was willing to listen to any and all direction that yeah. they gave to me. And so I go to this temple and, you know, they create a pentagram and it's not like chalk drawn on a, a concrete floor, right? Like you oh. were probably picturing a pentagram was like you set up in a in the shape of a pentagram, the different elements of the earth, right? So yeah. like wind, fire, water, air, and spirit. Mm-hmm. And so what you do is you get in the circle and I don't even remember the chant, thankfully, you know, yeah. I'm glad that I don't remember some of that stuff, but get in the circle and you say this chant and you close the circle. So after the circle is closed, like nobody can enter. Mm-hmm. And then once it's closed, you begin to invite in the dead. So you're calling in dead, the spirits, animals, ancestors, whatever. And man, people lose it. Yeah. Like they are howling, they're pounding on the ground. Yeah, because you're inviting negative gr- energy. Yeah. Like why would you want to do that? And like why? <laughs> Run away from the Ouija board. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And Yeah, so I was there for a while, and I continued to pursue this, and I think that was actually in my first year of sobriety, but, you know, as far as my addiction went, like, backtrack a couple years, I, after I was kicked out of my parents' house, and moving around, and doing more and more drugs, and getting jobs, and losing jobs, and making friends, and losing friends, and stealing from people, and and whatever, I was in and out of the hospital, hospitalized multiple times for my drug and alcoholism, and there was one time that I was totally obliterated. I had alcohol poisoning with my coworkers. They took me to the hospital. 
I'm surprised I didn't 5150 me because I was saying that I was going to kill myself. And I must have not said it to the nurse. I said it to my boss that was with me. And yeah, 5150 means that they put you in a psych ward. A psych ward. So you're on like a 72 hour hold. I was 5152. So you were? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. For trying to commit suicide. Totally different episode. Yeah. (laughs) Would like to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. But for those of you who are listening and have never heard of 5150, it's a cop code. And so if anyone says that they're going to kill themselves or harm themselves, they put you in a psych ward for 24 or 72 hours. 72, yeah. Yeah, I don't remember exactly, but they, and then they have like people come ask you, psychiatric people. All these questions. Yeah, why do you want to kill yourself? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I was 17 after my parents' affair, I had, I had cut up my arms so bad and they tried to 5150 me, but my mom told me like, tell them you're not trying to die. And so I didn't go, get 5150 at that time, which I probably needed the help then, but yeah. this was a different time. And I was wasted. I had alcohol poisoning. I wasn't even wearing my own clothes. I had none of my own things, no phone, no keys, like no nothing. I don't even know where you were, where I came from. I was wearing somebody else's bikini. I have no idea. And my boss is with me and I'm sitting in the the ER and I'm saying, I was molested. I was molested. I had never, ever spoken about that. So that was at like, I think I was 21. Wow. I got sober at 22 or 23, 22. Yeah. So you had suppressed it for so many years. Oh, yeah. I said it was not real. It was not real. It was not real. And a big part of me had blocked out. You know, it's pretty amazing what the brain can do when you're like traumatized Mm -hmm. is you can block out time periods. Literally erase it. Yes. Yes. And so, or push it back so far, you know. And so I had blocked out about 10 years of my childhood, right? And my drinking helped that. And so that was the first time that I said that. And then when I, you know, sobered up the next day and I had, I was so physically addicted to alcohol. I had DTs. Like if I wasn't, had, didn't, if I didn't have some alcohol in me, then I would pick up like a glass. My hands were shaking. Like I oh needed goodness. alcohol to not shake. Yeah. Delirium tremens is what it's called, DTs. And it's just from withdrawing from alcohol. And yeah. so that night I didn't have a phone. I didn't have anything. I was actually sexually assaulted by a doctor. <gasps> yeah. That was another assault. There were so many assaults too in my addiction. You know, we kind of, as addicts, we put By a doctor? By a doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my in God. the ER. And Did you report that? No, oh. no. But I have thought about it a lot. I think you should. I have prayed about it. Um, Definitely. I, I could probably find out what doctor that was too. Find out, my report him because you know why? If you don't, ladies, if we don't report these things, yeah. there's somebody else out there getting molested, assaulted, grabbed. You name it. You name it. Harassed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So please, please report when anyone mistreats you, any male or female yeah. mistreats you. And I was, you know, because I had been so used to pretending like things didn't happen, that's exactly what I did after that is I just was like, I actually didn't even come to terms with that until I got sober. And I was like, oh, yeah, I got assaulted. (laughs) And I didn't tell anybody because it was just, I don't know, that's how I was conditioned. And But um, I didn't have a phone. They gave me a, it was like a house phone in the room. And I called my grandma again Um, at at 1 a.m. This woman isn't supposed to drive after dark. And she uh comes and picks me up in her nightgown, all her hair clips in her hair and and she picks me up and she just brings me back to her house and it's the safe place, right? And fall asleep. I wake up. I have DTs so bad. And man, she just really, really did a lot for me. I'm so thankful for her. And, you know, we forget like that there are people who have like done so much for us, you know? And yeah. And so I'm really grateful for her. But um, we forget that there are people out there that really love us. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Because we forget to love ourselves. Right. And we tell ourselves or the enemy or whatever you want to call it, like tells us these lies that we're not lovable and that we're not worth it and that we're not this or we are that. And yeah. 
So your grandma picks you up. You're 21 years old. Still in my addiction, that didn't change anything. I was in and out of hospitals, in and out of psych wards. I got a DUI. I was in and out of jail. I was just very, very lost and totally blind. You know, I, mm-hmm. I was totally blind and I hadn't truly like met the creator yet. I had minimal um, encounters, but n- not enough for yeah. me. And so then I meet this man and his he's a heroin addict and I love him. I'm so in love. How old and are I, you? I think I was 21. Yeah. So he introduced me to IV drugs. <gasps> I became, I, I did not want to do heroin because heroin was trashy to me, but I'm going <gasps> to, I'll shoot cocaine. So I became um, addicted to like shooting cocaine. And I didn't I, even know that was possible. Definitely is. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> he got me hooked on that and he kind of just dipped out, you know, because his addiction took him elsewhere. And I started shooting cocaine. I go work at an elementary school. I would no shoot way. cocaine and go work at a school, man. And it was, my job was perfect for an addict because I worked outside. It was only three to five hours and I could wear sunglasses. So nobody could see if I was wasted or if I was high. Yeah. And um, since then I've made, you know, a living amends, which is, I actually started working for that place again in sobriety. Oh, and nice. I was able to just really be present and to really have an influence on the kids and not be on my phone all day and not be detached and I could be there for them. So that was really cool for me. So now you are with this man. Yeah. You're shooting up cocaine. Yeah. And at what point do you hit rock bottom? He definitely was a catalyst for sure. Cause right, he got me hooked on that. He kind of left for a time. And I was doing it by myself and my friends are like, what the heck are you doing? Because I, I partied with people, but they didn't party like I did. You uh-huh. know what I mean? And they were like, why are you, you can't just like shoot up like that. Like, what the heck? It's yeah. the middle of the day or like, we're, you know, and, and where do you get the needles? Like, where do you get this stuff? CVS. See, this is, uh, CVS. They sell needles. I thought you had to have a prescription. But he gave me, he had given me like a whole box. Oh, so okay. I had that. And I was not an IV drug user for a prolonged amount of time. It was a couple months. Yeah. Um, it wasn't like years and years for me, thankfully. So I'm doing that. And then I'm like, what the heck? I have to stop doing this. Like, this is crazy. And this is mess- really messing me up. And I would do that as I would. Alcohol was always the connecting thread, but I would switch from different drug to different drug to different drug if I felt like that drug screwed me up too much. And so yeah. I stopped that. And then I start doing Adderall. And it's 12, 12, 12 was supposed to be my sobriety date because on that day I had taken a bunch of Adderall. I was in school. I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I took a bunch uh, to complete my finals, whatever. And I had finals the next morning and I was really wired and I was with my friends and I was like, you guys want to go out and drink? And they're like, no, Jenny, like finals are tomorrow, yeah. but I'm an alcoholic. So I don't care what is tomorrow. Yeah. You know, I don't care what is in the next five minutes. Like I'm trying to get loaded. I'm trying to shut off and and detach and, and feel good. You know, that's, yeah. I just wanted to feel good, man. And the friend told me, oh, you should just take a shot of, of NyQuil. That'll help you. You'll go right to sleep. But as an alcoholic, you can't just take addict, one I don't shot. take one shot of anything. You take right? the whole bottle. Yeah. No. So I drank multiple bottles of NyQuil. So I'm wow. on a ton of Adderall, a ton of NyQuil. And that's basically like dirty acid. I was hallucinating. I was tripping out. I was trying to connect with the dead. Like I was, it was so, so bad, Paola. It was just I was very, very sick. And and were you by yourself when yeah. you were tripping out? Like, yeah. Where were you? Like in my home? apartment. Mm-hmm. I had an apartment. Were you not scared? Uh, I think I just like lived in fear. So it was not. Your normal state. Yeah. It was it was my default and default state. And so I'm drinking all these bottles and I was like, it would be so cool if I just never woke up. It would be so cool if I just never woke up. I ended up falling asleep 
And so my dad, when I was in my addiction, my sweet, sweet dad, he would call me every single day. I had no relationship with my mom, like hardly at all. But my dad would call me every day when he got up at 6 a.m. and he would leave me a voicemail. And I would get a voicemail from him every single day. Jenny, I love you. I'm thinking of you. Um, I hope that you're okay. We miss you, you know? And he was, it was really awesome that he did that. And I remember falling asleep. I ended up falling asleep. I could not sleep till like four or five in the morning. Fell asleep for an hour. I wake up to my dad's phone call and I try to answer the phone. And I can't talk. I can't speak. I'm, wow. I'm you know, so uh, intoxicated. And he, I could hear the panic in his voice. Jen, Jen, like, are you okay? And then he hangs up and he calls back and I don't answer. And I, I'm still hallucinating. I go into my roommate's room and she was like, what the heck are you on? Called my therapist, called my grandma, called my mom. I end up going to the ER yeah. I'm checked in there. And I still am not like taking this seriously. You know, like I don't give two hecks about my life. I don't care. Yeah. I do not care. I want to die, man. I want to be dead. Are you at the edge of your seat? So was I. Jenny and I spoke for an hour and a half talking about her journey from darkness to light. I did not want to cut her off. So instead, I made this a two-part episode. Tune in next week for part two of Jenny's spiritual journey. Thank you for listening to Journey of a Fearless Female with your host, Paola Rosser. You can find me on Facebook, The Fearless Female Movement, on Twitter at Fearless Female 9, on Instagram at Paola Rosser. And don't forget, ladies, tune in next week for the conclusion of Jenny Hubner's journey. Goodbye.